0: Welcome to this week's Rashi Sheer, brought to you from the Bet Midrash of Mizrahi in Melbourne, Australia. Good evening and welcome to this week's Sheer on Rashi. And we have really finished the Arkada. Tonight we're going to do the epilogue to the Arkada which is uh, also the maftir of Parshat Bayera And in Shem, we will start Parshat Chai Sara. So we're up to Pasuk Kaf. And Pasuk Kaf, so let's just set the scene because uh, Rashi says it's very relevant. Um, the is all finished. Abraham passed the test. Um, and then in Pasuk Yurtet, Yashav Abraham El Na'arav, Abraham returned to his lads. Rashi doesn't actually ask where was Yitzchak at the time. So we assume that Rashi assumes that he was with him. They got up and they went together to Be'er Sheva. And avraham dwelt in Be'er Sheva. And Rashi makes the point that, having said previously, at the end of the previous peruk, that Avraham was living at this point in Hebron So the trip to Be'er Sheva, as he says, there was a, in Rashi on Yuter, lo yeshiva Mamash. It wasn't a real dwelling. It was just a pop by. He just uh, popped by for a short while. We'll come back to the relevance of that, and then we read pasuk kaf and it was after these things, La Avraham. It was told to Abraham, saying, yalda Milka Behold, Milka has also born. Banim Banim to Nachor, your brother. So Nachor is the brother of Abraham. Milka is the wife of Nachor. And Avram gets a message. Maybe he already knew, and maybe he's reminded because of a particular piece of information that is going to come in Pasuk Kaf Gimel. Or maybe he didn't know, but he's told some family news that his brother has, Kenai Nahara, had a number of children. Now, Rashi says as follows. When he returned from Ha Maria. Hayah Avraham Maharher Baomer. Abraham was thinking and said, "Ilo haya Bnei Shachut Kavar. If my son had already been slaughtered, as Abraham thought was the was going to be the end point of the trip to HaMaria, Hayah Balobanim, he would go go away without children. Haya Leilah Hasio Isha not Ener Aner eshkol umamra. So it is for me to marry him to a woman from the daughters of Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre. Now, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre have occurred a couple of times before. They're Abraham's mates. Um, They are not Jewish. Therefore, their daughter hasn't got the yichus of coming from Abraham's family. But they seem to be good people. They give Abraham advice uh, about the Brit milah, and, and, and they go to war with him. So they seem to be good people. So, Avraham says that's going to be my default option. I need to find a wife for Yitzchak, because after all, he, he might die and he needs to produce children. And these three people are suitable people to be my Machotan. And that point, Bisro, Hakadish Baruch, Hu, Hashem informed him Rifka, that Rivka had been born, which we're going to talk about in a moment, but Zugal, and she is the one who is going to be the Beshet. For Yitzchak, the Zehu, and concludes Rashi: This is what is meant by Acharei ha ha After these things, Hihurei devarim, the thinking about, the wondering about the things, Shahayo, Akeda, that was by means of the Akeda. So, what is Rashi dealing with? What is Rashi's problem? Rashi's problem is the phrase Acharei ha ha after these things. Now, Rashi seems to work on the basis that this never means what it seems to mean. In other words, it seems to say event A happened, and then the Torah describes event B, and links it up with after these things. In other words, after event A, event B happened. But Rashi believes it can never mean that, because if it did mean that, it would be totally superfluous. You don't need to say after event A happened event B, because you've got it. Event B is described after event A. So it must be after something else. We saw this famously at the very beginning of the same parrub where it said, um, After these things, Hashem judged, uh, tested Abraham and then Rashi told us what these things were and it wasn't what had just been described. So it's gotta be something else that there is nevertheless a link to the Akedah, but it's not the Akedah itself. So Rashi draws on the Midrash and says, Abraham had reason to think about a shidduch for his son, Yitzchak, and the reason came as a result of the Akedah. But, these things are, as Rashi says explicitly, um, and he repeats the, at the end of his comment, the thoughts of the things which happened as a result of the Akedah. So it doesn't mean after the Akedah, it means something that happened, but because of a juxtaposition, we know that something happened in a sense connected to the Akedah. It's also the case that we've dealt with the fact that it says devarim, plural. And if it's about the Akedah, there's only one Akedah. You could say there's like separate bits of the Akedah, but there's really only one Akedah. But if you look carefully, Rashi has found a plural when he said at the end of his words, hadvarim ha'ila, hi huray, plural davarim the thoughts about things. So I think he deliberately goes for the plural there to fit in with the devarim. But there is a huge problem because Rashi at the beginning of Perak Tetvav, Perek Tetvav Pasuk Aleph says on the words, Achar HaDavarim HaEla, Rashi says there, Tetvav Pasuk Aleph, Kol Makom Achar Achar Samuch, if it says the word achar it means closely joined, acharei muflag, if it says acharei it means not closely joined, it means separated by a longer time period. So the Maforashim all wonder how Rashi can say on the words here acharei, which he there said muflag means separated, refers to um, something that happened straight after the Akeda. Now it would be nice if you could say he'd been thinking about this a long time and he'd been thinking about a shidduch for for a long time previously and then you could say a long time after he'd started having these thoughts Hashem told him about Rivka but you can't do that because Rashi starts his words with when he returned from HaMaria and he said the same Rashi says he didn't stay long in Be'er Sheva so Pasuk Kaf is very quickly after Pasuk Yudchet in other words, straight after the Akeda. So how do we deal with the akhare which Rashi said over there in Perik Tevav means Muflag? So there, I think there are three approaches. One is to say, it's difficult. Another is to say, uh, the Chizkuni says this, um, that when Rashi says Achar is Samukh, that's Davka. So whenever you see Achar, it means closely joined to the previous event. But achare is Lav davka. It might be close, it might not be close, which is a bit of a stretched reading of Rashi, but it's what the Chizkuni says. Um, the Mizrahi says that when Rashi says samoch, it means immediately after. And when Rashi says... Uh, uh, so it could be a few here. Okay. Um, let's move on. No, Rashi on the words, Gamhi. So if we look back at the Pesach, uh, it says, V'yugad l'Avraham leymor hine yalda milka, gam hi banim l'nacho achicha. Milka has born, also she, children to nacho, your brother. Rashi says, gam hi, ah hi, hishvata mishpachatecha l'mishpachot Avraham. Also also she, has equaled her families to the families of Abraham what does that mean shtemisre there's 12 ma abraham shnemes re shvatim sheyatsum yakov what is the case with abraham he had 12 tribes which came from Yaakov. shmona Beneha hagevirat eight of them came from the main wives but arbaa banei and four of them god ashadan Naphtali, came from Yes, came from the uh, Bilhar and Zilpah. So you have 12 children, eight from the wives, two, four from the concubines. Um, similarly, these, as we're about to see when we go through the next Pesukim, Shmona b'nei Gvirat va'Arba b'nei Pelegesh. So Nacho also had eight from his main wife and four from his Pelegesh. Now, why does Rashi say that? Well, the first answer is, Rashi's explaining the words gamhi, which really do stand out as needing explaining. Because if the message is, Milka has borne children to your brother Nahor, that's all it needs to say. Gamhi also, she has also done something like something else has happened. So it can't be like anything's happened to Abraham because he never hasn't got many children, he's got two. Um, But Rashi finds a way to say, but gamhi, she's done something parallel to what Abraham has done. Next thing to say is, of course, these aren't Abraham's children. And Rashi says, these are children from Yaakov. But just as Abraham has 12 great-grandsons, that's equivalent to Nacho's sons. So as we know, Abraham is the father of Yitzchop, the father of Yaakov, who's the father of the Shavatim. They all trace their lineage back to Abraham. And in that sense, they are direct, well, they are direct descendants of Abraham. We can almost call them the children of Abraham. uh, it's also worth noting that the other children of Abraham, Yishmael, and the Bnei Keturah we're going to learn about quite a bit later, don't count. They, they, uh, they, what we're talking about is the Jewish children. Uh, and it's also worth pointing out that perhaps Rashi is pointing out that there is, when there's Tumah in the world, there's kedusha in the world, and the kedusha uh, covers up the Tumah. So Nachor, um, he's not a bad guy, but he wasn't uh, an Obed Hashem, he was an Avod of we know that from other places, um, some of his children, who incidentally are not mentioned here, are very bad, or one in, one of his grandchildren in particular, um, bless you, bless you, so is saying that there is an equivalence because Abraham brings Kedusha into the world to deal with to uh, uh wipe away the tumor that other families bring into work now who are these children so pasuk kaf uts so the children of nachor born to him by milka et utz bacharo utz his firstborn and buz his brother and kumuel who is the father of aram uh, I do remember, I'll never forget Rabbi Brovinder teaching this piece, and he said who would call their children utz and buz? You know, maybe if you exhausted every possible name in the book, you'd come back to utz and buz. Anyway, continues, v'et keshet, v'et chazo, v'et v'et yidlaf, And then it says, betuel yalad et rivka, and betu'el. He begat Rivka. And then it says, Shmona Eila Yalda Milka Lanacha Achi Abraham. And these eight Yal, uh, Milka bore to Nacho, the brother of Abraham. Now, just before we get back to Rashi on Kaf Gimel, I just want to read Kaf Upilak Show and his concubine, Ushma Ru'uma, her name was Ru'uma, the Gamhi, and she also bore Et Tevach, Gaham, Gacham, et Tachash, et Ma'acha. Those four, and as we were promised, there will be four from the concubine and eight from the wife. Rashi on Kaf Gimel, on the words Ubutuel Yalad Ed Rifka, says Kol Hallelu. All this genealogy, Lo Nichtavu Pasukze, was only written for the sake of this verse. This verse that said Butuel begat Rifka, because um, Rashi says in his comment on Kaf that this whole message is all about Rivka's been born, that you don't need to look at the non-related, not uh, not your family, Anna, Eshkol and Mamre, for a wife for Yitzhak. because you can look at Rivka, she is the Bat-Zug. Uh, and in a short while, is gonna send Eliezer to uh, the home of Nachor to find a wife and lo and behold, he finds Rivka. So, Rashi said in post Kaf that the whole point of the message was about Rivka, but he makes that point again here in Kaf Gimel. Why does he do that? Well, it's probably because there's something odd about the way Rivka is mentioned in three respects. First of all, no other grandchild of Nakhla is mentioned. Oh, sorry, Arambas. Aram was, yes. Okay, good point. One other child of, of uh, Nahor is mentioned. I think that is in the sense that Kuma, Kuma el is the father of the whole nation of Aram, and that's of interest because that becomes relevant many, many times subsequently in our history. But um, a Stam, other person, um, and a granddaughter, and as we know, most times the women aren't actually mentioned. If the women are mentioned, it's for a very specific reason. Um, the next thing to say is she is mentioned before the rest of the sons are, are listed. So that's why I wanted to read Kavgim or then Kavdalot because in Kavdalot it finishes the generation of children of Nahor. So you would have expected the grandchildren to be listed after all the children. And perhaps the biggest piece of all is if you're going to mention the children of Patuel, we know that had, Batuel had a son before he had a daughter. And that son is a male and b older, but Lavan, whom we know is definitely part of the family, isn't mentioned. So for all these reasons Rashi says, or maybe for all these reasons, there's a particular emphasis on Rivka. She is the Yotemina Klal, her mention here is, is exceptional, and therefore Rashi says all this Yichus, all this family of 12 people is only mentioned for the sake of Rivka, which, by the way, also answers another question, is why do we need to know all this at all? Because these people never reappear in Jewish history. Uh, Utz does not appear anywhere else. So, so why, why do we have them as compared to say, when we're talking like from say, Adam to Noah, and Noah to Abraham, we only really mention the one, like we don't care about the siblings. So why do we care about the siblings here as compared to in that case, maybe? Good question. I haven't really got a good answer. Rashi doesn't address it, um, but it could be the following. So there's an idea of Rav Menachem light tanks, um, who which is excellent, like all of his ideas, um, that whenever you see Eilatoldot, so these are the generations of, then what we're doing is narrowing down, we're, we're either, sorry, Toldot Yishmael, for instance. Um, so we learned about the, the children of Yishmael, and then they are, as it were, the book is closed. So sometimes Tolda is to tell us we're no longer interested in that branch of the family. And then conversely, sometimes Ela toldot Yitzchak, for instance. We're now going to concentrate on Yitzchak's children, in that case, Yaakov and Esau. Um, There is a toldot Yitzchak, there is a toldot Yaakov. Interestingly, fascinatingly, there's no toldot Avraham. Nowhere does it say Ela toldot Avraham. But at the end of Pashat Noach, it does say Ela toldot Terach. These are the children of Terach. Nachor and Haran, who's the father of Lot, and Sarah, and Abraham. And the reason for this seems to be because the children of Terach all come back in the story. Rivka comes back in the story. Rachel and Leah, who are the children of Lavan, um, and hence the grandchildren of the Tuel and the great-grandchildren of Achor, come back in the story. So the story of Abraham and his, his children very much intermingles with that of his cousins, who are all part of Toldat Terach. And therefore, uh, the reason what I'm trying to get to is we know a lot about the Toldot Terach in order to identify which ones are not going to be kept onto and which ones are. So this is anything from the end of Noah onwards, technically, is part of the story of Toldot Terach before we get to Toldot Yitzchak, whereupon we're only interested in Yitzchak and his children. So at this point, we're interested in Nacha's children. So we need to know who they are in order to know that we don't need to know any more about them. Thank you. That concludes the Sedra of Vayera. We should have a little of, but we won't. We will do something even better than that. We will carry on learning and we'll go straight into Chayei Sara. And we start with a very well-known and very complex Rashi. And I'm probably not going to go very deep in it and you'll see why. Perakavkim or o'pasuk Aleph, VaYhiyu Chayei Sara And the lives of Sara were Meyashana, the ve Esrim Shana the sheva shanim, a hundred year and twenty year and seven years, shnei chayei Sarah, the years of the life of Sara. Rashi says, on the words vahiyu vahiyu chaye Sara, mei shana ve'esrim shana ve'sheva shanim, lakach niktav shana b'chol klal uklav. This or for this reason, it writes the word shana in each general grouping. I'm adding the word grouping. So it's Esrit mea the for Esrim-Shanah, the Sheva-Shanim, in a way that it normally doesn't. If you look, for instance, at the list of generations from Noah to Abraham, I'll pick a random one, Peruk Yud Aleph, um, Pasuk, uh, well, from Pasuk Yud onwards, uh, so let's see, the Age of Shem, um, that's not a good example, because it's just 500 years. Uh, that doesn't work either, because I need a um, one with a units as well as a hundreds and a tens. No, <laughs> it's funny, that one's just got units and hundreds. It's probably better to go to the end of Bereshit, where they give the total ages of each one of those ten generations. Okay, here's a good one. Perak Hei posuk Kaf. I found one. Vayhi kol yered shtayim v'shishim shana u'tesha me'od shana. Two and sixty years and nine hundred years. So it doesn't say two years, and 60 years, and 900 years. That's the difference. But here it says shana b'chol klal uklal. Why does it say shana b'chol klal uklal? Lomarlacha, to teach you shakalecha nidrashla adzmo, that each one is expounded by itself. So the hundred years, and the seven twenty years, and the seven years, are not just one single unit of 127 years, but there's something significant about the 100 years, there's something significant about the 20 years, and something significant about the seven years. And what is that? But mea Kabat esrim l'chait. When she was 100, she was like she was 20 in terms of sin. What does that mean? Says Rashi. Ma bat esrim lochata. A 20-year-old has not sinned. <coughs> Because she is not liable for punishment until she gets to 20. Uh, Rashi doesn't spell out, but that would mean in a betdin shalmala, in a heavenly court. We're going to, there's going to be a little problem with that in a moment. The betdin shalmata can give punishments at a younger age, um, but uh, from 20, she has a liability mea uh, below So similarly, she is at the age of a hundred. She was also without sin. Ubat esrim sheva And when she was twenty, she was like seven in terms of beauty. And then Rashi on the word Shnei Sarah says, Kulon shavin Latova. They were all equal for good. Now, uh, there's a tremendous discussion and great. Lengthy pieces are written about what exactly is Rashi Darshani. And um, the question is partly because it's not really clear what Rashi means. But it's also the case that if you look at um, the end of Chayisara When we come to the end of the life of Abraham, These are the days of the years of the life of Abraham, who lived. A hundred years and 70 years and five years. So again, it says Shana at each stage. And that works fine because Rashi says there in Kav Zion, on the words, (laughs) Ben mea ke ben shivim. When he was 100, he was like 70. Uben And when he was 70, he was like five, below chet, in the sense of not having sinned. So that's okay. When we, we can now say, we've seen it happens with Sarah, and we saw it happen with Abraham. When the Torah breaks up each part of the age, it's in order to darshan that style that when you were 100, they were like 70, etc. The problem occurs... With Perak Kaf He Pasuk Yudzayan The Yishmael. This is the years of the life of Yishmael. A hundred years and thirty years and seven years. But Yigvan, he expired, and he died. And Rashi says nothing rashi does not darshan the years of Yishmael, even though they are in the same format sh- uh, me'at shana, shloshim shana, so really the mefoshim of rashi are grappling with two things number one what exactly is the is the, the uh is going on here in pasuk Allah? what exactly is rashi expounding and number two whatever it is why doesn't it work for yishma so it could be that, um, that Rashi isn't actually focusing on shana, 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 but rather the, as it were, the repetition of the beginning of the end, by at the beginning and at the end, which you don't find with Yishmal, there's no equivalent with Yishmal, so that would be a reason. Uh, I'm not quite sure exactly the process, but it's a distinction to say you do darshanet with Sarah, and you don't darshanet with Yishmael. What about Abraham? Um, so you don't quite find that. Uh, there's no like that book ending with Abraham in Pasuk, Café Zion. Chaye Abraham asher chai, shanim, and there's no Shnei chaye Abraham at the end. But perhaps you could say there is yemei Shnei chaye Abraham. So there's that bit of extra wordage by Abraham, which allows you to make the drasha, and there isn't by Yishmael. I also saw that, and this is a very subtle point, again, I'm, I'm not totally convinced by it, but if you look at the Ishmael Pasuk, uh, yudzaim, chaye yishmael, Maat Shana, the first grouping is ma'at shana. If you look at Sarah, it's mea, Shana. What's the difference between mea and ma'at? So ma'at has to take the word shana after it, otherwise it makes no sense. Mea doesn't. Mea stands by itself, it means a hundred. Ma'at means a hundred of, so it needs to be a hundred of years. So if mea doesn't need the word shana after it, and yet it's put here, that is a reason to dash in it. So that's a distinction. That is the case with surah. It's not the case with Yishmael. fortunately, it is uh, not the case with Abraham. Abraham is Mayat Shana, so how, on what basis, can we dash on Abraham? And uh, again, the Yame comes to the rescue, and those who want to say that Abraham's got the uh, so Sarah's got the Meir, Abraham's got the Yame, and Yishmael's got neither. So that's why we dash in Abraham and we dash Sarah. So uh, there's there's so much I am um, you know we we could discuss on this because as I said, I'm unfortunately right, pages and pages on this, but. Um, I, I'm not saying I fully understand exactly the logic of any of these positions, but um, there's certainly some degree of superfluity um, in the Sura pasuk which allows Rashi to make this deduction. Um, a point to make about this twenty bat onshin: she doesn't get punished for sins after until the age of twenty. Um, if one looks at Peruk hay pasuk Lamad bet. Yes, Rashi says, or the Pasuk says, So Noah had his three children after the age of 500, and Rashi says there um, Hashem deliberately delayed Noah having children so that. Um, none of them should reach the age of a hundred before the Mabul. She says, so the oldest one, Yafet, shouldn't be liable for punishment before the Mabul. Because the says, that A lad will die at the age of a hundred, which means He'll be liable for punishment in the future. The kein lifnei matan Torah, and that was the style before matan Torah. So Rashi said before matan Torah, people were not punished until they were hundred, implying after matan Torah they were punished from the age of twenty. So why does Rashi here say that Sarah um, reaches the age of liability at the age of twenty? So good question. Maybe you can say that when Abraham came, that was like the beginning of the process of Torah coming to the world which is a bit of a stretch, because it isn't. Or you can say that um, at the age of 100, you become liable for the death penalty. At the age of 20, you become liable for punishment in general. It's definitely hard. It definitely seems to be a contradiction, and it's hard, actually, to marry that up. The last thing I want to say is um, this idea, this comparison between the age of 20, she's like the age of seven, in terms of beauty. First thing to say is, what's the big deal about beauty? I mean, sheka haheen beheval Yofi. Um, uh, Beauty is nothingness, we say in Eishat Chayel. So why are we talking about her beauty at all? So well, maybe beauty is not quite nothingness um, in in every respect, Um, and also uh, uh, maybe we can say that the nature of her external beauty, in the case of Sarah Imenu, reflects her inner content. What is beauty after? What does it mean that the age of 20, she looked like the age of seven, she at the age of seven for beauty. It meant that she didn't decay. That's what beauty is. It means that from seven to 20, she hasn't lost any of her luster um, in an external way. And that sort of matches up with her internal nature as well. But I'd also like to say, it's very interesting that that's the way that the comparison works. At the age of 20, she's as beautiful as she is at the age of seven. In our modern world, we would have said it the other way around. Uh, we would have said the epitome of beauty is not a seven-year-old. That's In fact, we wouldn't really associate beauty with a seven-year-old at all. The epitome of beauty is a 20-year-old. Ah, the Torah is telling us that what we see in a 20-year-old, that's not real beauty. Real beauty, yeah, that, that, uh, what, what, what's beautiful in a 20-year-old is probably artificial, and it's probably due to, to, to cosmetics, and um, it's not the type of beauty that we should be looking for, but the beauty of a seven-year-old, the Tomemahistic, the innocence of a seven-year-old, That's real beauty, not the 20-year-old. That's a a construct of the modern world. Having said that, there is a version of the Midrash, on which this is based, which reverses the order, which says when she was seven, she had the beauty of a 20-year-old, okay? Um, No, sorry, when she was 100, she had the beauty of a 20-year-old, that's right. Mm, So 20 is the epitome of beauty, according to that version. But Rashi sticks with his version and says the beauty is determined, the, the epitome of beauty is the seven-year-old. Okay, let's move on to Pasuk The The Sarah, Kiryat Arba, he, Hebron. And Sarah died in Kiryat Arba, that is Hebron, for Eretz Canaan, of the land of Canaan, by Avraham Lispod Lsarah And Abraham came to eulogize for Sarah and to cry for her. So Rashi's, first, Rashi's got quite a lot to say on this verse, and he starts up by saying, what's this Kiryat Arba? Now we've heard of Hebron before. We haven't heard of Kiryat Arba. And the Torah here gives two names for the same place. So there must be a reason for the second name. And Rashi gives us a reason. In fact, he gives us two reasons. The Kiryat Arba, Al-Shem Arba Anakim Shahayusha, It's named after the four giants who were there. Achiman, Sheishai, the Talmai, the and their father, who also come uh, mentioned in Rashi, um, in the story of the Muragalim. When the Muragalim came and said, we saw giants, these are the giants that they saw, which means they must have lived a long time. So one reason why it's called Kiri Arba is because it's the place with four giants. Deva Acher, another reason, Al-Shem Arba Zugat, Shnikbarul Sham, because of the four pairs, the four couples who were buried there, husband and wife. And who were the four couples who were buried there, husband and wife? Adam and Chava, Abraham and Sarah, Yitzchak Rivka, Yaakov the Leah. Rachel didn't merit to get there, but Leah did, as, as Avra, Yaakov himself said in Parsha's Vayechi. Um, so why does Rashi bring two answers? I'm not quite sure why Rashi brings two answers, but look at the difference between the two answers. First of all, one is uh, there's a difference in time period because the four giants were already there, but the four couples were not there. Uh, One of the couples was there, Adam and Sarah, uh, sorry, Adam and Chava, but obviously Abraham and Sarah weren't there because they were still alive. Yitzhak uh, isn't there, he's still alive, Yaakov hasn't been born. So the second explanation is with the perspective of, uh, of, of looking back from a historical point of view about something that hasn't yet happened. Another point is Kyria Arba in the name of the giants is possibly the name that the locals gave it. Kiria Arba in the sense of the four couples in Maratha is the name that we gave it. So there's a uh, two different aspects, two different perspectives on the same place. Um, I'm still not quite sure why we need both explanations. Maybe there were both explanations. Maybe it's important to understand both explanations because they do sort of complement each other as I've tried to show. And, and there's a, another point that we need to ask. Rashi doesn't address this, but we need to ask on Rashi. Why now is it called Kiryat Arba? If it's called Kiryat Abba, the same as Hebron, why hasn't it been called Kiryat Abba before? Now, according to the second answer of Rashi, obviously the answer is obvious because now Abraham is inaugurating it as a place for future burials. It's already been the place for Adam and Sarah, but he's and Chava, but he's now getting it for his progeny, the ancestors of the Jewish people. And now it's going to become or designated as Kiryat Arba in the sense of the Araba Zugot. Uh, that doesn't work for the four giants. But it could be that because it was a place that raised huge people, it was therefore a place where other things could flourish, including Kedusha. Again, a little bit like uh, I said a moment ago, that perhaps you can compare the internal and the external. So the fact that it produced four remarkable people in stature shows that it's remarkable, shows that it's a special place and a place worthy of using as a burial place. Or you can say that, why was it called Kirit Arba? Why was it named after these four giants? Because these four giants protected it, which means they made it into a special and worthy place. So without saying that necessarily it grows great things, like it grows giants, but the fact that it was protected by four giants means that it's a special place, means that it's got a certain hashibut, which explains again why Avraham wants to bury Sarah there. Okay, the next thing to Rashi says, a very short but interesting Rashi, by Avraham, Mi Avraham came. So the obvious question is, where did he come from? He came from somewhere. Says Rashi, he came from Beersheba. Um, I won't, won't comment further until the, the next Rashi. To, but uh, <laughs> I, I will come back to that. The next Rashi is on the words the Sara believe to eulogize for Sarah and to cry for her. The Mita Sara La The death of Sarah is joined to the Akedah of Yitzchak. Now, by the way, Rashi doesn't say what he sometimes says, it sounds similar. Nismacha Parshazu whatever, that this Parsha is joined to that. Then he's asking, why does the Torah write this next to that? Here he's not saying that, and he's not talking about that. He's talking about the incidents themselves. Why are the incidents themselves um, so joined together? Why is the incident of the Akedah happening right next to, immediately before, the death of Sarah? And the answer is they are connected al because through the news of the Akeda, that bana son that Hasan was prepared for slaughter, kimat shalo nishchat, and he almost wasn't slaughtered, there's an extra negative in the Hebrew, which doesn't come out in the English, so he almost was slaughtered, parcha nishmata, her soul flew away, mimena, from her, umeta, and she died. So Rashi is telling you that these two events are not just written next to each other because they're written next to each other, but but actually they happened next to each other. Now, why does Rashi say that? So I'm not really answering that question, but I want to point out that this is consistent with what Rashi says in lots and lots of other places. For instance, the age of Rivka when she got married. So Rashi says that where at the akeda it was announced that she was born um rashi says that she was three when she got married so there's three years from the uh, it's not, uh, uh, the, the calculations work sorry the, the rashi uh, uh, i know what i'm gonna say rashi says the torah says that um yeah was 40 when he got married the torah uh, we can also work out that he was 37 when Sarah died because he was born when Sarah was 30. We've just been told, sorry, he was born when Sarah was 90. We've just been told that Sarah died at 127, so we know he was 37 when she died. Okay, those facts, that 40 when she's married, when Yitzhak's married, 37 when his mother died, that's not Midrash, that's not Rashi, that's explicit in the Chumash. Rashi makes the connection, and Rashi says that he married Rivka when she was three, which we all know is being very difficult to understand. Um, And Rashi says that Yitzchak had children when he was 60. He waited 20 years, 10 years for Rivka to become ready to have children. And then 10 years when she didn't have children, that's the 20 years. So Rivka was three when she got married, when Yitzchak was 40. So she was born when Yitzchak was 37. And Rashi said, that she was, the news came of her birth at the moment of the Akeda. So that only fits together if Yitzchak was 37 at the Akeda, which means Yitzhak was, the time when Yitzhak was at the Akeda is the same time as when Sarah died. And there are other points as well to tie all these numbers together, but it's, it's important for Rashi's calculations that the death of Sarah and the Akeda both occur at the same time, which i.e. Yitzhak is thirty-seven when Sarah dies. Yitzhak is also thirty-seven at the time of the Akedah. That is why Rashi also says, going back to the previous Rashi, "Vayavo Abraham mi Sheva. What does it mean? He came from Be'er Sheva? It means that the jaunt that he took, the day trip that he took to Be'er Sheva in Perak Kafbet Pasuk Yud Tet, was where he went straight after the Akedah, and now he comes. By Yehovah Avraham immediately after Sarah's death, because he's come immediately after the Akedah, so he didn't go anywhere after going to Beersheba before Sarah died, because by the time Sarah died, he has to come from Beersheba. In other words, Kaf Gimel Bet follows on immediately from Kaf Bet Yud Tet. Kaf Bet Yud Tet, he goes to Beersheba, which is immediately after the Akedah, and Rashi says that when he comes in Kaf Gimel Bet, he's come from Beersheba. That is the significance of Rashi's two words about me Be'er Sheva. Number one, he's answering, answering the question, where does Abraham come from? And number two, he's connecting it to Be'er Sheva to connect it to the Akeda, as he does in the, the, the next Rashi as well. well. Why did he go to Be'er Sheva? Is there any reason why he was there? Uh, Rashi doesn't say so, obviously. Um, I think there is a Midrash about something special in Be'er Sheva. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's curious. I mean, given Rashi's chronology, if, if, if we don't accept Rashi's chronology, there's no problem. He goes to Beersheba, he stays there for a while. Um, but going to Rashi, on the way back from Jerusalem to Hebron, he pops by Beersheba, which we know is somewhat out, out of the way. Pasuk Dalad. No, Pasuk Gimel. i just I'm Is, is there any mother cup small and believe Um Rashi doesn't comment, he doesn't, no, occasionally he does comment on things like that. Um, no, it's one of these Masoretic notes. Um, I'm sure there are comments on it. Kaf is 20. Um, I vaguely recall something, but not right now. Pasu kemul b'yokam Avraham me'alp'nei me'to. Abraham rose from on the face of his dead one. And he spoke to the children of Chet, the Chittites, saying, So now we start the uh, 20 verses or so about buying the cave of Machpelah and the negotiations with Ephron. And Rashi has a particular view of Ephron, which we will come to. And he starts with the words, Pasuk Dalat, Ger anochi imachem. I am a Ger, I am a Toshav, which I'll leave untranslated, with you. Tanuli achuzat keva imachem. The meiti milafanai. Give me a possession of a grave with you, and I will bury my dead from before me. So Rashi says on the words, Gevatoshava nohi imachem, Ger mi eretz acheret, for nityashavti imachem. I am a stranger from another land. And I have settled with you. Um agada, but there's also a midrash which says, "Im ger, if you wish, I will be a ger. imlav toshav, and if not, I will be a toshav, a settler, a dweller, ve-etlana min and I will take it by right. I will take Marat which he's about to ask for, by right." Shamareli, Hakadosh Baruch Hu, because Hashem said to me, "Lazaracha etein ata aretz azot." To your children, I will give this land. Now, two explanations. The first of it is ger me aretz acharet v'nishavti imachem, and the second one is im titzu ger v'im lav ehiey Tosha. I heard from Nachama herself that when you get to but actually two Perushim, but certainly two Perushim within one Mafarish, I Rashi gives two explanations. It's a very good exercise to try and identify what is the single point of difference between the two. And you'll notice that I sometimes try to do that, sometimes not very successfully. But here I can tell you Necham B'leibut's own answer. What is the single point of difference? It's this, whether Ger and Torshav can exist simultaneously. According to the first explanation, Avraham has elements of both. Now, that's funny because they are really contradictory. If you're a stranger, you're not a dweller. And if you're a dweller, you're not a stranger. Well, dweller as in Toshav meaning one of the residents. You're like a, a fully accepted member of the team. So how can you be a ger, which is the opposite of Toshav? So Rashi answers that by saying, you know how? In one respect, I'm a ger because I have come from somewhere else. And I've still got that label as a gear. But on the other hand, the nitya shavti imachem, I have now settled with you. So I am both at the same time. According to the second explanation, they are mutually exclusive options. If you want, I'll be a ger. But if you don't want, I'll be a toshav. And furthermore, in the second explanation, we see that there are different legal statuses and legal uh, options for ger and toshav. Now, he doesn't spell out what it, what, what it means to be a gear. he does spell out what it means to be a toshav, so we can work it out sort of by extrapolation. If I'm a toshav, I'm a full citizen here, and I can take it because it's mine, which means if I'm a gear, I won't take it, I will buy it, which is what I'm offering to do. So I'm offering, I can be a gear, which means I'll make a purchase and you'll get my money, but if you don't agree, then I will be a toshav and you won't get my money and I won't make a purchase. So... Key difference between the two, can Ger and Toshav um, coexist. Now, now, given that, we can perhaps understand why we need two explanations. Because the words the Toshav Anochi Machem sounds like he is both at the same time. But, and that sort of satisfies the literal meaning of Ger V Toshav Anochi, I am a Ger and a Toshav. The problem is. What's that got to do with what's going on? In what way is that an introduction to the purchase of the Cave of Machpelah? The second explanation does that very nicely. The second explanation, Avram says, listen, I'm coming to get this cave. I can get it as a gear or I can get it as a toshav. So that's why he starts his speech by saying, listen, you've got these two options, directly related to what's coming next about the purchase of the cave. Whereas according to the first explanation, there isn't really a connection between what he starts off by saying to what he really is about to talk about. Next thing I want to say is Rashi's choice of the Pasuk that Avraham uses to explain his Toshav credentials. <inaudible> to your children, I will give this land. So the question is asked, why doesn't he use the Pasuk of Yudzayin Hek, for instance? If you look in Yud-Zayin Chet. What does he say there? Hashem says, I will give you and your children after you, the land of your sojournings, the whole land of Canaan. Includes Abraham personally. And there's another one which he could have used, Yud Gimel Tetvav. And Yud Gimel Vav. Hashem says, ki akala aretz ato ashe'a toro'er et etnanu. All the land which you see, to you I will give it. ulazarcha ad and to your children forever. So in both those examples, it says, you and your children. You personally will get it. Yet the example that Rashid says that Avraham is using doesn't mention him. So why not? So I saw, well, I saw one explanation. I'd like to offer another one. Avraham is very conscious that at the Brit of Atarim, he is told that he will be a stranger uh, in a land that is not his for 400 years. When will this decree come into effect? Says Rashi, from the birth of Yitzchak. Why does it come into effect from the birth of Yitzchak? We've mentioned this before, because once Abraham has seed, has children, then the Pasuk of um Yeh Be'aretz L'Olehem Gea Zarecha, so I have time. Pasuk Peretet Vav, sorry, Peret, yep. Oh, sorry, here we are. Your children will be strangers in a land which is not theirs, but that will start when you have children, i.e. from the birth of Yitzchak, which has already happened. So one answer to this question is Rashi is saying that Avram is already sensitive, that in this period of Jewish history, from the birth of Yitzchak onwards, he personally doesn't have the right to any land. It's for his children who will inherit the land in the future. Or, but I would like to say slightly differently, I'm not sure if I, if my explanation stands up, but we will see later that Abraham is buying this cave on behalf of Klal Yisra, on behalf of the Jewish nation. Um, that's the nature of a cave, the nature of a, a grave, sorry, is something that exists in perpetuity, but is not just for the benefit of the person buying it. On the contrary, it's for the benefit of all of his descendants forever and that is on whose behalf he's buying it. And that's why he quotes a passage that says, this land belongs not to me personally as Abraham, but it does belong to the entire nation of which I am a part. And that's on whose behalf I'm buying it. Um, by the way, it's worth mentioning, there's a, there's a, a well-known comment of Rabbeinu Yona, who says, um, he, uh, the Midrash, sorry, the Mishnah in Pirkei Avot says Abraham had ten tests. It doesn't list what the ten tests are. So the different Beforshon on the Mishnah lists what the ten tests are, and everyone but one culminates with the Akedah. It's obviously the big one. Yeah. Offering to sacrifice your son is like pretty big. <laughs> ben Yona, interestingly, has a different way of counting. He includes the Akedah, but the Akedah by his counting is number nine. This is number ten. Buying the cave of Machpelah is the 10th test. Now he doesn't say explicitly, but that makes it the greatest test, but it's sort of logical that number 10 is the greatest. And you'll know from um, last week's parasha um, that Rashi brings in the words of Hashem, who castigates Moshe for a lack of imuna, as it were, lack of bitachon. At the end of Parsha Shemot, um, Moshe says, why have you brought me to uh, Paro? Me azbati. From the moment I came, things have got worse and worse. And in the following parsha, Ha'erah, Hashem responds, and according to Rashi says, look what I have lost. In other words, the previous generations were better than you, Moshe. Avraham was promised Eretz Kanaan, and then he had to pay a lot of money for a tiny little parcel, and he didn't complain. And that um, perhaps is even stronger when we say that, what well, the first explanation I gave a moment ago, is that Avraham realized that even now, even in his own lifetime, he's treated as a ger. He's not a... Uh, he's not able to take possession of this land that's been promised to him, um, that to realize that the promises that Hashem has has made are not to be realized in his lifetime, and he continues to live as a ger, is a very, very great test. Uh, Since I've mentioned that, I just want to say one other thing, because I heard about it just a few weeks ago, which is so beautiful, not relevant to Rashi, but relevant to what we just said. Another reason why this was the hardest test, uh, according to Rebanias, you owner's know, counting, but a beautiful idea because this was the first test that he had to do without Sarah by his side. That's what makes it the hardest. Quite a powerful idea. Okay, um, we have time just to finish off this Keva. So, Rashi, uh, sorry, Abraham says, I want Keva Machpela as an, uh, I, I want to get an Achuzat Keva. What is Achuzat Keva? Says Rashi, Achuzat Kalka levate hakavarat, a possession of land, of ground, for a place for graves. What's the problem? The problem is, what does the word normally go with? Uh, means possession, but you don't have a kever, you take possession of ground. Ground is land, is the ultimate piece of property, Um, It's immovable, it's very very solid, it's very very reliable, there's all sorts of halachas about what you can do on the basis of the land that you own, which you can't do on the basis of movable things that you own. Um, Land is something that you can have as a chuza. A kever is not something that you can have as an achuza. We could go further and say what actually is a kever? A kever is a hole. A kever is a a space which is empty. Um, So you can't take possession of an airspace but what you can take possession of is the ground on which the kever is to be built. And that's why Rashi says, uh, he adds the word karka because you can't actually have an achuza of a kever, but you can have a achuza of the karka for the kever. And before we finish, there's one more little change that Rashi makes in the words of Abraham. So Abraham asks for an achuza kever, Rashi adds the word karka, but what else does he add? He also has the word levate but I'm more concerned about the next word, rot. Avraham asks for a keva. Rashi rephrases it as possession of land for a place for graves in the plural. Why? Because Avraham is going to want it for graves in the plural. He's going to want it for six graves altogether, plus the two were already there. So it wouldn't really be quite accurate for Rashi to translate keva in the singular, because that's not really what Abraham means. So, in which case, why does Abraham say kever? Abraham's not being deceptive. I'm not saying Rashi has got got it right and Abraham's got it wrong. But so what that means is the word kever in the text means bury your place, and that's what Rashi makes clear. It can't mean grave in the singular, because Abraham wants it for more than a grave in the singular. So Rashi is telling you that when it says the word kever, it means bury your place. In a general sense, which can ha- actually would be a bet kavarat, which we would translate as cemetery. Now, I'm not using the word cemetery because it's not quite a cemetery, but it's a mausoleum, if you like. like it's a, a family sepulcher. He use all sorts of fancy words. So Rashi is saying that the word kever does not here mean a grave in the singular, but it means a bet kavarat, a place for graves in the plural. Yeah. Okay, we will stop there. We will see you next week how the negotiations go